Tonight's readings from the New Testament are three selections from the book of Luke, and they can all be found on page two of your bulletin. Luke chapter five, verses 15 and 16. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. John chapter 5, verses 41 to 44. I misread earlier. I'm sorry. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is the word of the Lord. God. We do thank you. We thank you for your spoken word. Uh, Even if uh, jars of clay like myself make mistakes, uh, your word doesn't come back void. And we thank you that we can be gathered before it and the great hope you've given to us when we believe it. Help us to believe it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight we are going to conclude our series on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we've looked at several areas of Jesus's humanity. We've talked about his feelings, Jesus's compassion, Jesus's anger. We've talked about the temptations that he would experience. We've talked about the fact that he had to grow just like us. We talked about the fact that he had to rely on God's spirit. Last week, we talked about the fact that he had to set boundaries And under all of those things, there's one very critical point, and it's this, that Jesus' divine nature, that God nature in him that we see as he heals people, and as he performs miracles, and as he rises from the dead, Jesus' divine nature never canceled out his human nature. It never canceled it out. And what I mean is he never used it to make his life easier. And he never used it for the purpose of not being intentional. Being fully human means that he was subject to the same walk and journey that you and I are. In fact, if he hadn't done that, he would not have accomplished the purpose for which he was sent. We might say that there were three reasons why Jesus was sent. One is that you and I might see what it means to be truly human. That we might see moral beauty and what that looks like. Secondly, he came that, he might, that we might know he's a qualified and sympathetic high priest. That God has placed him 
in heaven that he might pray for you. And when he prays for your struggles and your doubt and my anxiety and your fears and your weaknesses, he is praying with experience so that you would know that he knows. But lastly, it was critical that he would come fully human to serve as a substitute. The Christian faith teaches that you and I have two problems. And maybe I'll illustrate it this way. Imagine you're at work or you're at a gathering of friends and one of them begins to run down and slander another person you know. It's just unfair. You've got three choices. One, you can join in and say, yeah, you know, this person really bothers me too and take it further down the road. You can do nothing, or you can speak up. Now, what does the Bible require of you and I? Well, I think many of us would say, well, it requires us not to do the first, not to slander them, not to run them down, but how about the second and the third? Right? You and I are called not just to not do wrong, we're called to do right. And so when Jesus came as a human person, he did two things. First of all, he came to bear judgment and guilt and punishment for our wrongdoing, which you and I commit every day. If we're humble, we have to admit that. Every day I fall short in caring about my neighbor, his oppression, his injustice, their struggle. But the second thing is this. Jesus had to come and live the life that I should have lived and you should have lived. And so if he would have cheated his humanity in any way, he would have not accomplished that goal. He did not rely upon his divine nature to do what God required him so that you and I might know I can relate to him. He can relate to me. And it hits all those areas we talked about. And the final one I want to discuss, put before us, are priorities. Jesus faced the same pressures and temptations that you and I have, even more so, with respect to our priorities. He knew what it was like to have family members that would pressure him. He knew what it was like to have a a temptation to take a shortcut to success. He knew what it was like to have demanding people around you. He knew what it was like to be in so much pain you just want relief. And so you're going to take this coping mechanism that's just so close He knew what that was like. He had to struggle to hold on to his priorities, just like you and I do. And as we look at his life, there are five things that we observe, at least five things that I want to bring to us about his priorities. The first one is is that Jesus was self-aware about his priorities. That one might just sort of uh, pass by us. He was self-aware about his priorities. I think one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a person in their life is that they are not self-aware about their priorities. Basically, your life is just one big reaction or impulse. So at the end of of your life, you go, man, I never saw that the way I handled romantic relationships was just me trying not to have the marriage my parents had. Or, as a friend said to me when he turned 50, I think most of the major decisions in my life have been out of fear. For you and I, 
What does that look like? Or basically, most of what I do day to day is just for the approval of people. Because I want their acceptance. One of the ways that Jesus avoided that was he would articulate his priorities regularly. You see this all throughout the Gospels. Let me give you a sample. For this purpose, I was born and have come into the world to bear witness to the truth and to bear witness to the Father. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Can you hear that constantly throughout his life? He's articulating what he's about, what his purposes are, why he came, what his purpose. Can you do that? When I was in seminary and we were learning how to preach, our professor would say, can your sermon pass the 3 a.m. test? And that is this. If I called you up at 3 a.m. and said... What is your sermon about? You could, like, you know, get yourself together and give it to me in one small sentence. Those that do research on accomplishing goals will tell you those that write their goals down have ten times more success. Right? Why? There's something magical about pen and paper? No, because you're articulating what you believe. And you do that with your priorities. Jesus did. And it not only helps you know them, but it helps other people hold you to them. Second of all, what we see in Jesus is this. The greater demand upon your priorities, the greater you will need God. The greater demand upon your priorities in Jesus' life exhibited the greater need he had for God. You heard it read when it said, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But... He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You hear the contrast there. Jesus' reputation in his ministry is on the way up. He's blowing up on Twitter. He's blowing up on Facebook, right? Lots of people want to be part of him. And at that very point, when you and I, when the boss says, hey, I see value in you, I want to front load you with another job on top of the one that you have. Or when, you know, you find that at this point you're really starting to connect with people. You're new in a city, and all of a sudden, you know, this group that you kind of want to be a part of, you're getting texted all the time, do you want to do that? At that very point, when Jesus could have went forward, he went the other direction. He went backward. He understood, I'm in a vulnerable place to lose my priorities. And so I need more alone time with God. I need more time alone. And it wasn't just, you know, I think it's important. It it wasn't just for peace or centering himself. It was because of neediness. He needed that. Uh, In 2005, the comedian Dave Chappelle shocked the world. Many of you know this story when he just walked away from his career. He walked away from a $50 million contract. He walked away from essential relationships he had. And he went to Africa. And I remember in the news, there were all these assumptions and accusations about him. You know, he's, he's, he has a habit. He must be addicted. Why is he doing He has mental illness. Why? You know, we, people just could not process. Why would someone do that? And he said, you, you know, I, I hadn't had time to grieve my father's death. 
And I didn't like where comedy was taking me. And then he said this, I'm interested in the kind of person I've got to become. I want to be well-rounded, and the industry is a place of extremes. I want to be well-balanced. I've got to check my intentions. Jesus' pattern was the greater the success, the more he pulled back, the more he felt he needed to. One of the great lies that sin introduces into our hearts is this idea that uh, the goal of my life is to become more independent. Now, the goal of your life may be to become more interdependent, but independence in and of itself is a myth. It's a myth. And with Jesus, we find this place where, you know, he's constantly, I'm just so sobered by this, you have the perfect God-man. And in one way, no one is more aware of their freedom. No one is more aware of their power. No one is more aware of their limitlessness. But no one lived more dependently on God than he did. He just would confess this weakness. It's so contrary to the way I think. You've got this greatness and this self-sufficiency. But in his human nature, he felt so needy for God. He would say in John 5, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Everything I do, I seek to please him. Think about how many decisions you and I make every single day. The plans we make for our week, the plans we make for our lives, the plans we make to move, the plans we make to enter into a relationship, and we do it Maybe spending two minutes with God. Does that frighten you? That frightens me. When I think about the decisions I make and the time I take to actually commune with God about them. Theologian John Piper wrote an article entitled, If I Were 22 Again. And he lists many things, but one of the things he mentioned was, If I Were 22 Again... I would read my Bible every day for the rest of my life. If I have time to eat, I have time to read. And I don't think that's a boast. I think that's a confession he's making. A confession of need. Jesus made a similar one. Once he hadn't been eating, his disciples said to him, Master, Rabbi, you need to eat. And he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you and I evidence, when it comes to our priorities, this great neediness for God? And I'll tell you, discerning priorities takes effort. It takes time. It takes community. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he's saying, seek the Lord. But then after he does that, he almost seamlessly says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the heart, uh, to the Lord with your heart. Do you see this connection he's making between discernment? He's saying on one hand, you know something? It takes effort to discern. You know, you are very liable to being duped. You're very liable to being fooled. 
Modern people think they're above influence. They think they're above being deluded. We think we're very smart. He's saying be careful. But on top of that, he talks about this. He basically describes a worship service. Who would have thought? How many of us have ever thought, I got a really tough decision to make this week. I need to go worship. I don't know if I'd think about that. But you know what clicked to me as we were worshiping here? This is the place of affection. Many times we think of priorities in terms of my head. And what I sit down with a piece of paper and what I think about. But actually, what's driving your priorities are your affections and your desires. And so when you and I come to worship, what do we do? Properly worshiping, we lay our affections out. We confess, you know, I love that confession we had. That's my heart, God. And then we put the object of our affection on God. So the greater demand for priorities, the greater demand to move to God. Thirdly, you observe in Jesus the priorities serve the glory of God and not the glory of men. He mentions, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God. And by glory, you know, we're talking about how God defines excellence and beauty and holiness and what's right and good and what's loving. Having been in D.C. now for 16 years, um, I have recognized certain glories that um, people love and hold on to. There's the uh, who you know glory. You know, that idea of you're in a party somewhere and someone important walks in and you, who you know glory. I think there's also who has access and who can give access glory. There's global glory. I've traveled a lot. I've been these places in the world. I understand what's going on. There's community service glory. People that come to D.C. want to change the world. We have the Washingtonian Award for those that have contributed the most if you're a parent, you know, there's highest achieving kid glory. You know, my kid's in this, my kid's in that, my kid's going to this school. All of these things are just human forms of glory that we pine after. And there was a key way that Jesus held on to his priorities. He did not receive the glory of men. Now, that doesn't mean he wouldn't take worship and praise But when it came to his confidence and his security in the direction he was going and the priorities he was going, he would not receive glory from people to make those decisions. He knew that they they couldn't live together. They couldn't be together. I was reading um, this past week about uh, King Hezekiah, and it made me think, you know, sometimes when God wants to expose the way you and I are pining after other glories... Sometimes he just makes you uh, disappointed. You lose something, you fail, it's blocked. But other times, he'll give it to you. He'll give you the thing that you've been lusting after. So King Hezekiah, he's written up as a good king. He was a good king, but he had a vulnerability. He loved to boast about pride and achievement. And he liked to find security through that. And so what he did was this. Uh, He knew he would need an alliance from Babylon... So when they came into town, he unveiled the glory of his military arsenal. And what we read is this. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, God left Hezekiah to himself 
Why? In order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. It may be that you're getting your glory right now. The thing that you've been wanting. And it's really showing what's in your heart. Why? Because God wants you to realize that your priorities cannot coexist. One of the temptations that Jesus faced, of course, was the devil came to him and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus had a right to the kingdoms of the world. The glory of the world belonged to Jesus. Why didn't he say yes? Because he knew it was a shortcut. It wasn't the way the Father would have him do it. C.S. Lewis famously has said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. The book of Romans says that, you know, one of the ways that we sin is exchanging the glory of God for a lie. For that we have with one another. And here's the thing. God has planned such glory for you and I. Amazing things. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has planned for those that love him. Yet he has told us those that exalt themselves will be humbled and those that humble themselves, they will be exalted. And so, priorities serving the glory of God. Two more, shorter ones, and we'll close. We serve with Jesus. He knew that the ultimate object and aim of his priorities. He knew what that was. One of the common themes you hear when you hear Jesus talked about, this is for the reason I came. I came to bear witness to the Father, seek and save the lost, do your will, uh, bring abundant life. You realize there's a common theme there. They're other-centered. They're really set down on the two great commandments. This is how Jesus' priorities were organized. So whatever he did, it was pointing that way. He came to fulfill the law. I mean, the gospel teaches this. You were his priority. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? That whoever might believe in it might be saved. God's priority was you, your life. This is something that has to penetrate into your heart if you're going to really know Christ and know God. You must have to come to the understanding that God is personal and he came for me. He came in space and time, but he came for me. And my sin and my shame and my difficulties and my story, he carried that. This is what Jesus said he came to do. And when we understand that, we begin to see that efficiency in and of itself is not a sufficient priority. Productivity is not a sufficient priority. Achievement is not a sufficient priority. Excelling in your career is not a sufficient priority. Being healthy is not a sufficient priority in and of itself. All these different things. What direction are they pointing? Let me, let me try to illustrate it in a couple ways. Imagine you're going to have a dinner. Think about all the little priorities that have to happen if you've ever had a dinner. You know, first of all, it's just an effort to get people's schedules to line up, right? If you don't quit after that, I mean, you're really off to a good start. So you get that happen. And after that, you've got to make time where you're going to shop, right? What's going to be on the, on the menu, on the list, what you're going to do. And then, you know, you're going to probably think, well, this is the most strategic way to get through the grocery store. I want to go this way and I want to go that way. That's another decision of priority. And you decide when is going to be the best time to go so everybody's not there. 
You know, not, everybody's not at Trader Joe's. I'm not going to go Sunday afternoon, right? That's not going to work. And after you do that, you get everything home. And then you move into all those little priorities like, you know, I'm going to cut the carrots. And after the carrots, I've got to move on to this. And then I've got to start the boiling water. And then I've got to make sure the place is vacuumed on the day of. I'm going to dust everything and I'm going to light the, right? All these little decisions. But why are you having the dinner? Well, it's to show hospitality, right? It's to love someone. No, we forget that, Right? By the time someone shows, this is how we are, you know. But by the time we get it all done, we're like, oh, these people are coming over. Hi, how are you? Meg says, I have this thing when I get tired that I go like this. So if you see me doing that, pray for me. Because I'm losing strength to engage at the dinner party. But right, all the little priorities were that, or let's take it a different way. You know, you're on a team, you're playing for a team, and you're playing in an ensemble. What's the priority? Well, the priority is to excel in my gifts. that's, That's a priority. My priority is to give my all. That's a priority. My priority is hopefully, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, reach new heights in my ability. But I, I, that shouldn't be it. I mean, I hope your priority is team, Right? Elevating someone, communicating as musicians, maybe blessing the audience. Priorities, serving love. Or work. Maybe you're not in the people business. And you say to yourself, well, yeah, you know, it's easy if you're uh, a teacher or if you're a nurse or you're a social worker or if you're in ministry, right? You guys are the people people. You're really filling Jesus' priorities. Well, I'll tell you the temptation happens when you're in this kind of work. You basically go on autopilot. You work with people, but you don't love them. Hey, there we go, right? That's what happens. You work with people and you don't love them. That's the temptation there. But even if you're someone that is hanging drywall or putting data entry in, you know, or you're someone that's balancing a financial sheet, At some point, you really have to step back and you have to ask yourself, at least Christians have to do this, believing people, how is this fulfilling the two great commandments? Because it is. Because everything does. It might have to go a couple steps down and go, well, you know, it's a good thing that I'm helping provide financial solvency to this organization because it does a couple things that ain't so great, but you know, it does one thing really important. And I'll tell you, if you're building houses, do you think you're blessing someone by building a good house? Yeah. But the point is, we are called to engage in that sort of thinking. I was thinking about two experiences. One, when I was in Nashville, there was this man who was a CEO of a a company. And the company was a company that produced wrapping paper. Now, you might ask yourself, wrapping paper. Hmm. How is that this great godly priority I'll tell you, this guy did his work and ran his company in such a way that it was transformational on the people there, on the employees, on the community, on the clients, the way it worked. He had thought through, how do all my priorities point toward the two great commandments? Or, last week, Meg and I went to Charlottesville to have an overnight. And uh, we went to this restaurant and... You know, being too urban-minded, we'll say, we'll just Uber before we know it. Like, we're back out on the highway. You know, we're just, like, Ubering far away from the city. 
And they drop us off, and the driver said to us, listen, you know, chances are when you call another Uber out here, they're not going to come. And so here's my text, you know, just let me know. And uh, text me 15 minutes before, I'll come out and get you. And I thought, well, he probably just, you know, it's a pretty good bill, right? The cynic in me. And, um, and I write to him on his way out, and uh, I say, how are we going to work the payment here? This is kind of weird, you're coming out here. And he said, uh, no, nah, this is my last drive of the day, don't worry about it. I'll just help you out. And then we're on the way back, and we begin to talk about things, and we get into faith. And it turns out, you know, this is a guy that is, like, serious about his faith. Well, you know, I'm not saying if you're a Christian Uber driver, you've got to give away free fares. And by the way, I tipped him handsomely. <laughs> I know the cynics in you are going, that was all the plan, Glenn. Listen, he didn't know I was a pastor. He didn't know I was a Christian sucker. So, uh, but the bottom line is, you know, I mean, the guy was doing that work in a way where he thought about people. And then he used to also talk about like, how he would pick students up and how he was concerned about you know, getting them to the right place when they were in the best state of mind. So, do you know the ultimate object of your priorities? Lastly, let's close with this. Your priorities must be little. Your priorities must be little. And by that, I don't mean unimportant. They must be seen in the little things. Jesus adds, he tells this, I gave you just part of this crazy parable he tells of the unjust steward. And I can't go into all these things, but basically he's just telling the steward, you gotta, he commends him for having foresight to plan ahead. But in it, he says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. If you can't be trusted with unrighteous wealth, you can't be trusted with true riches. And then he talks about a heart that's divided with loyalties. True priorities will show up in little things. It's not just how I serve my boss when he comes to my office, but how I serve the person beneath me that needs my help. Right? It's not how I respond to my schedule to the the group that I'm really excited to be part of. It's actually prioritizing the person that's just kind of on the margins that no one wants to be a part of. Priorities will show up in little things. And if they're not in the little things, they're not really priorities. But the second thing is, we must know that godly priorities will be in conflict with the world. They're mutually exclusive. Jesus doesn't say, you shouldn't try to serve God money. He says, you cannot do it. You cannot serve God in money. Do you understand that if you seek to have godly priorities, they will be at war with the priorities of the culture. And we have to be willing to count that cost. They were for Jesus. It's impossible to live in the world and live with the priorities of God. So, five priorities that Jesus gives you and I, we see demonstrated in his life, and we think about When we started this series a couple weeks ago on the humanity of Jesus, I made the comment that I find that people in the church, at least, uh, they are really comfortable with the divinity of Jesus, but the humanity of Jesus is sort of like, I don't really think much about it, and it makes me feel nervous. And I said, I, I really believe that as we delved in, we might understand that 
the idea that God became flesh in the way that he did, completely human, fulfilling what he did, should bring us tremendous comfort, company, encouragement, empathy, strength, and empowerment because he's so near. He so understands. He meets you where you are at. Let's pray that we progress in our understanding of the Lord's humanity. Father, we're grateful for you becoming, uh, rather, you sending your Son, the eternal person of the Godhead, to become a full-grown man, a baby and a full-grown man, Jesus Christ. And we're asking you that you might help us to benefit from this thing that no other faith conceives. In Christ's name, amen.